0: be reading this morning from Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. Hear the word of the Lord. Now the Lord said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was seventy-five years old when he departed from Haran. Then Abram took Sarai his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people whom they had acquired in Haran, and they departed to go to the land of Canaan. So they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem as far as the terebinth tree of Morah, and the Canaanites were then in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And he moved from there to the mountains east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. So Abram journeyed, going on still toward the south. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to dwell there, for the famine was severe in the land. And it came to pass, when he was close to entering Egypt, that he said to Sarai, his wife, Indeed, I know that you are a woman of beautiful countenance. Therefore it will happen, when the Egyptians see you, that they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say you are my sister, that it may be well with me for your sake, and that I may live because of you." So it was when Abram came into Egypt that the Egyptians saw the woman, that she was very beautiful. The princes of Pharaoh also saw her and commended her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. He treated Abram well for her sake. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord plagued Pharaoh in his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? I might have taken her as my wife. Now, therefore, here is your wife. Take her and go your way. So Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away and his wife and all that he had. Well, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Well, this morning we have reached... That point in Genesis uh, where we clearly part ways uh, with our paedo-baptist brethren. The calling of Abram or Abraham along with the attendant covenant promises made to him are understood quite differently by those who hold to Westminster federalism than they are by those who hold to the covenant theology put forward by uh, the authors of the 1689 London Confession, which is known by the term 1689 Federalism. Now, federalism is an English word that is derived from uh, the Latin, feodus, meaning covenant. Uh, And so a federal state uh, or republic is one in which various regions or cities have covenanted together, uh, bound together by the covenant with uh, a central head of state. In theology, federalism then simply refers to the covenant as the organizing principle for God's people under the leadership of a covenant or federal head. And we've talked about this before. Uh, in the garden, God made a covenant with Adam as the federal head of all of humanity, That was a covenant of works. But after the fall, God made a promise that the seed would come who would redeem mankind from the fall. So our confession speaks of the covenant of works in chapter 19 as the moral law of God written on Adam's heart and consequently on the hearts of all his descendants. But then in chapter 7 of God's covenant, our confession speaks of the new covenant or the covenant of grace, which was, the confession says, revealed in the gospel, first of all to Adam in the promise of salvation by the seed of the woman, and afterwards by farther steps until the full discovery thereof was completed in the New Testament. So one of those farther steps is here in Genesis 12 in the call of Abram. So we would understand that God is revealing the gospel to Abram, that he is revealing something of the covenant of grace in this promise that he makes to Abram, but that this is not the covenant of grace established, but only revealed. Our Paedo-Baptist brother our brethren argue that this is the covenant of grace. Uh, In fact, they argue it's established in Genesis 3 when God promises a seed and that that covenant is now being administered in a new way through Abraham. Now, we don't deny that God makes a covenant with Abraham. Uh, It's not formalized until chapter 15, but we we understand there is a covenant God makes with Abraham. But we affirm that the promises of of the gospel, the promises of the new covenant, concerning the salvation of the nations are just that, promises, promises of a better covenant to come, which is the covenant of grace, which will be established in the blood of Christ in the New Testament. So they speak of one covenant with multiple administrations where we see distinct covenants, promises, and typology pointing forward to the new covenant in the New Testament. So far in Scripture, we have seen two covenants. The covenant of works with Adam, in which the moral law of God is written on his heart. And then the covenant, And this covenant with Adam in the garden is a universal covenant in that it governs all mankind. All men are still subject to that covenant of works. And so all men are guilty and stand condemned because we have sinned. We're guilty of the sin of our father, Adam. We have violated that covenant of works. But it's a universal covenant for all mankind. And then we saw the covenant with Noah, or the covenant of conservation. Likewise, a universal covenant that governs all of creation, preserving creation and mankind particularly, so that God's promise might be fulfilled. But we also saw Noah, after that covenant, pronounce a curse on one son and a blessing On another, indicating that those promises would be fulfilled through one of Noah's son, the line of Shem. Now this will be confirmed here in the call of Abraham, who is Shem's descendant. And and from this point forward, in the storyline of the Old Testament, the line through which this promised seed will come is continually narrowed down. Abraham, not Nahor, his brother, Isaac, not Ishmael. Jacob, not Esau. David, Solomon. The line is continually narrowed down through which that promised seed will come. So the covenants we see from this point forward are no longer universal as the first two covenants were. They don't apply to all men, they apply to particular men, to particular families. The covenant with Abraham does not include Nahor and his descendants. The covenant with Israel through Moses does not include Ishmael's descendants. The covenant with David does not include David's brothers, although they have an interest in it, as we'll see. But Samuel Renahan comments and says, As the kingdom of creation began with the covenant of works, and was developed and expanded by the Noahic covenant. So also, the Abrahamic covenant is merely the first among other covenants that will be added to this one in governing the kingdom of Israel. So the covenant of Moses or the covenant with David will expand and develop the covenant made with Abraham, which begins here in chapter 12. But these covenants serve a larger purpose, In the plan of redemption, which is to bring forth this promised seed who, as we will see this morning, is promised to Abraham who will bless all the families of the earth. So these national covenants with Israel, beginning here with Abraham, are subservient to the covenant of grace. They they serve the greater purpose of bringing forth the Messiah who will bring salvation to all men The promise of the new covenant in Christ is contained within the covenant to Abraham, but it's not the same covenant. So let's examine the promises made to Abram here in Genesis 12, see how they relate particularly to his offspring and to the new covenant, and then we'll look at the chapter as a whole and see how it confirms the promise in a very beautiful way. So let's begin by reviewing the circumstances surrounding the call of Abram here in chapter 12. If you'll remember from chapter 11, the people of the earth have been scattered by God. They had gathered themselves together into one place, refusing to fill the earth and to cover the face of the earth. And so God comes down, confuses their languages, and scatters them across the face of the earth. And so the families separated from one another. This family spoke one language, this family spoke another, and so they separated, and those families became nations. This was a judgment from God because of man's wickedness and his refusal to obey the expressed command of God to fill all the earth and subdue it. But the scattering didn't suddenly make all of these various families and nations obedient to God. Far from it. These Families that spread out and formed new nations each developed their own forms of idolatry. So, when Paul and Barnabas visit Lystra in Acts chapter 14, and the people there attempt to worship them, thinking them to be gods, they address the people and tell them to turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all things that are in them, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. So in the past, God has allowed the nations to walk in their own pagan, idolatrous ways. Abraham's family was no different. Near the end of the book of Joshua, it is recorded for us, Joshua speaks to the people and he says, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers... Including Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, dwelt on the other side of the river, that is the Euphrates, in old times, and they served other gods. So in the midst of this crooked, idolatrous generation, God chose to reveal himself to this man, Abram, to call him out of the pagan idolatry in which his family was engaged to follow and to serve the living God. As Stephen said at the beginning of his sermon, which got him killed, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Haran, and said to him. And then he quotes from Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. So that's the background. Abraham was living in the land of the Chaldeans. He is part of a family of pagans worshiping false gods and then the true and living God appears to him. The the God of glory appears to Abraham and calls him to follow. So now we can focus on the first three verses here making note of the various promises in this passage. Genesis 12 verses 1 through 3 Now the Lord had said to Abram Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. You shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So you can see there are several promises made to Abram here along with a command. Now in verse 1, God commands Abram to leave his country, his family, and his father's house and go to a land that God will show him. And then we see Abram obey that command in verses 4 through 9. But there's a a promise embedded in that command. The promise, which is implied here, is made explicit in verse 7, that God will give them that land. Look down at verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said to your descendants, I will give this land. So there is first a commandment. to to leave his homeland, his family, his father's home, and go where God will lead him. And there's a promise attendant to that, that God will give Abraham and his descendants a homeland. This is quite obviously a promise made to Abram and his physical offspring, his descendants according to the flesh. And this promise of the land is a temporal blessing. It's for here and now, this life on earth It's not an eschatological blessing. It's not a blessing for the world to come. For the Holy Spirit, speaking in the book of Hebrews, says that while Abram received the land as an inheritance, by faith he dwelt in the land of promise, as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country, Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. They received the promise, the promised land, as an inheritance, but they did not receive the promises. They only saw them from afar, and by faith, they trusted in those promises and were saved by virtue of that faith in the promises of God. And they never grew too attached to this land. They dwelt in it as as if they were dwelling in a foreign land, confessing themselves to be pilgrims, not permanent residents. They knew it was not their ultimate home. They longed for a home that was with God, a heavenly kingdom. And that is what the promise is ultimately aimed at, our redemption, that we might dwell with God forever. So the, the land promise is a temporal promise to Abraham's physical descendants, but it's also typological. It's pointing the way forward to Christ and to all of those who are in him by faith who will inherit the new heavens and the new earth as the true in times forever homeland of God's people. So that's the first promise that's made to Abraham. I will give you this land. The second promise is that Abraham will have descendants to inherit that land, and a great many of them. We see this in verse 2, I will make you a great nation. This promise is first, again, a temporal promise to Abraham that uh, that carries within it a secondary fulfillment. The nation of Israel will come from Abraham's line, but Abraham is also the father of all who believe. So this promise is fulfilled in two senses. Abraham's offspring, according to the flesh, which is ethnic Israel, will inherit this land. And Abraham's offspring, by faith, those who believe in the promises of God as he did, trust in the promised seed, who is Christ, will inherit the world. And the context makes it clear that this promise can only be fulfilled by the will of God not by the will of man. For if we look back at verse 30 of chapter 11, it tells us, but Sarai was barren. She had no children. Abram's wife is barren. They, They have no offspring, no heirs. How can Abraham's offspring become a great nation and inherit this land if he has no offspring? Not by the will of man, but by the will of God. So this is the second promise Numerous offspring, a great nation will come from your line. We'll see this expanded and explained in later chapters. But these two promises, the promises of the land and the promise of numerous offspring, taken together constitute the promise of a kingdom. A kingdom established by God through means of covenant. Abram and his descendants are here constituted as a people, as a nation holy and set apart for God in covenant relationship with him and given a land in which to establish this new nation, this kingdom. And so Samuel Renahan again notes, participation in these promises depends on whether you are encompassed by the federal headship of Abraham. The blessings and curses of the covenant flow through the federal head. As goes the king, so goes the kingdom. So along with these first two promises, God then promises to bless Abraham and make him a great name. In verse 2, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And what does it mean that God will make his name great? John Calvin explains this promise of a great name in this way. He says, such happiness is promised to him as shall fill all men everywhere with admiration so that they shall introduce the name of Abram as an example into their formularies of pronouncing benediction. In other words, Abraham's name will be so well known and he will be so well thought of as one who was blessed by God that for for time immemorial, we will use the name of Abraham when we speak of the blessing of God And indeed, we see this throughout the rest of scriptures. We see references to the blessing of Abraham. And we still speak of this man today as the father of the faithful, or the father of all who believe. Abraham has given extensive coverage in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. So God did, in fact, make his name great. And there's a certain irony here in the scriptural text. If you'll remember, the trouble at Babel back in chapter 11 was that the people did not want to be scattered over the face of the earth. They wanted to establish a great nation for themselves. They wanted to make a name for themselves. We read in chapter 11, verse 4, and they said, "'Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth.'" What they wanted to do for themselves and God prohibited is now promised to Abraham by that same God. Abraham will become a great nation and his name will be great, not because he desires this for his own glory, but because God has decreed it for his own glory through Abraham. Now, this makes a point that we would do well to learn, and that is that There are things in this life which are not bad things in and of themselves, but it is the motivation of the heart that determines whether they are bad or good. If they are pursued for our own glory, then they are bad, they are wicked and evil. But if they are enjoyed as a gift from God with thanksgiving in our hearts, praising his glory in them, then they are a blessing and to be received as such. Such is the blessing of Abraham to give him many descendants to make his name renowned in all the earth. Abraham did not seek this for himself, but he received it from God as a blessing. And the blessing of Abraham was not uh, to be limited to himself. He was to become a blessing to others. For God said there in verse 2, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing Nehemiah Cox sees in this promise the honor given to Abraham standing in Adam's place as a new representative covenant head for all believing humanity, that blessing flowing through him to all who are his offspring according to faith. Then in verse 3, God promises more. In verse 3, God says, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you. Now, this is language that we might find in a, a treaty or a pact between two nations or two kings. Your enemies will be my enemies, your allies will be my allies. And here, God is promising these things to Abraham I will bless those who bless you, I will curse those who curse you. This is, first of all, a promise of divine protection for Abraham. Abraham has been called to leave his home his family, his nation, everything that he knows, and to to go to some unknown land that God will show him, inhabited by potentially hostile peoples. God is promising here that he will be with him. He will preserve him through these circumstances. But it's instructive, isn't it, that even though Abraham is called by God to follow God, that his family would be a chosen people, a nation, set apart and holy for God, they will still have enemies who will curse them. Christ told us that it would be the same. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So we have the same promise which Abraham received. And we understand from it the same thing that Abraham surely understood, that following God means that we will meet with opposition in the world. But God has promised to preserve his people through the trials of this world. As John Calvin put it, there is then no reason why the ingratitude of the world should dishearten us. Even though many hate us without cause, and when provoked, By no injury, study to do us harm, but let us be content with this single consolation that God engages on our side. So Abraham receives these promises, but then we come to the final promise in verse three. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is the gospel in seed form. The Spirit tells us this in Galatians. And the Scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. The Scriptures preached the gospel to Abraham, telling him that in him all all the nations of the earth, all the families of the earth would be blessed. This is the covenant of grace, the new covenant of Christ's blood revealed to Abraham in the promise to bless him and in him to bless all the families of the earth. Now, there's a reference here back to the scattering of the people at Babel in the previous two chapters. If you'll remember, we were told repeatedly at the end of each genealogical line We were told that the peoples were separated into their land, everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. And now we find that even though the people have been judged and scattered by God at Babel, God's judgment is now followed by a display of God's grace. Again, in Galatians, we are told, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So the promise made here to Abram is that the Messiah would come from among his descendants. This will be stated more explicitly in future chapters, but That is the essence of this promise. God promised to give Abraham many offspring, such that they would become a great nation. He promised that Abraham would be a blessing to others. And finally, God promised that that nation, not only the one described from Abraham, but all the nations would be blessed in Abraham, in the one who would come from among his descendants. The blessing to the nations comes through the descendant to whom the nations are not related, not by blood, not genealogically. They're related in some other way to the descendant, and we know that to be by faith. The covenant with Abraham had this blessing to the nations as its aim and its goal. This blessing of all the families of the earth was the purpose for which the family of Abraham was blessed. Samuel Renahan again says, the purpose of the people that is, the people of Israel, is to bring forth the Messiah. The old covenant is to give birth to the new covenant. The kingdom of Israel is to give birth to the kingdom of Christ. So now, let me show you how this chapter as a whole confirms this promise, assures us that God will, in fact, bring salvation to the nations. But I need to explain to you an underlying premise that I'm operating from, and that is this. The Scripture is recording for us real historical events. This is real history. But this history is providentially guided by the will of God so that it happens in a certain way, and it's recorded in Scripture for us with beauty and glory and a certain symmetry that is meant to make a theological point not only from the content of the history, but from the way it is recorded and told to us. And we've seen multitude of examples of this in our studies of the Scriptures, in the chiastic form of the Psalms, in the story of Esther, which builds up a number of story elements and then reverses those things in order at the end of the story. That really happened that way, on purpose, Because God willed it to happen that way in order to show us that we might see the beauty of those reversals. Well, something similar is happening here in Genesis chapter 12 in the form of three parallels. And what I mean by this is that there are three distinct sections of Genesis 12. We have the call of Abram in verses 1 through 3. Then we have Abram in the promised land in verses 4 through 9. And then Abram in Egypt in verses 10 through 20. And each of these three histories has at least one parallel elsewhere in the book of Genesis. And these parallels make a point. Very similar, if not exact, language is used again in future episodes. We've noted before that when we see a repetition of words or phrases in the narrative, it's intentional. It's meant to call our attention to it, to make some point, larger than the individual history being recorded. And the same is true here in Genesis 12. So this first section, which we've just examined in some detail, the call of Abraham, along with a few verses in the following section, finds its parallel in the history of Noah, particularly in Genesis 8 and 9 after the flood. So bear with me as I I read these passages to you. Then God spoke to Noah, saying... Genesis 8, 15. Now the Lord said to Abram, Genesis 12, 1. Go out of the ark, Genesis 8, 16. Get out of your country, Genesis 12, 1. So Noah went out, Genesis eight eighteen. So Abram departed, Genesis 12, 4. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, Genesis 8, 20. And there he, that is Abram, built an altar to the Lord, Genesis 12, 7. So God blessed Noah, Genesis 9, 1. I will bless you, Genesis twelve two. Be fruitful and multiply, Genesis nine one. I will make you a great nation, Genesis twelve two. I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you, Genesis nine nine. To your descendants I will give this land, Genesis twelve seven. You can see the parallel. Some of them are exact phrasing. Noah and Abram both represent new beginnings. Noah, a new beginning for all of humanity. Abram, a new beginning of a nation, the nation of Israel and all of those who believe and trust in the promises of God. So that's the first parallel that we see. But then as Abram enters into and passes through the promised land, we, we find a parallel with the history of Jacob, Jacob, which we'll get to in, in coming weeks and months. But Jacob uh, leaves to go find a bride and he goes to his uncle Laban's house, which is in Haran, Abram's former home, and there are parallels between these two stories. When Jacob returns from his uncle's house back to the land of Canaan, it is very, very paralleled to this episode here in Genesis 12. Then Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people whom they had acquired in Haran, and they departed to go to the land of Canaan, Genesis 12.5. Then Jacob rose and set his sons and his wives on camels, and he carried away all his livestock and all his possessions which he had gained, his acquired livestock which he had gained in Padan Aram, to go to his father Isaac in the land of Canaan, Genesis thirty one, seventeen and eighteen. Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem as far as the terebinth tree of Morah, Genesis twelve six. Then Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, Genesis thirty three, eighteen. And he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord, Genesis twelve eight. So Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he talked with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured a drink offering on it, and he poured oil on it. And Jacob called the name of the place where God spoke with him, Bethel, Genesis thirty five fourteen and 15 so abraham journeyed going on still toward the south genesis 12:9 then jacob came to his father isaac at mamre or kirjath arba that is hebron where abraham and isaac had dwelt genesis 35:27 so we see that abraham journeyed through from haran to canaan visited certain places built an altar in one and dwelt in another Two generations later, his grandson Jacob makes the same journey from Haran into Canaan, stops at the same places, builds an altar in the same place, and dwells in the same place. The point is the promise is secure because even though Jacob will leave the land, he returns. He follows the same pattern his grandfather did upon entering the promised land. In the last half of the chapter, we then see Abram going to Egypt and here the parallels start in Genesis, but carry on into Exodus. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to dwell there, for the famine was severe in the land, Genesis 12.10. And the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. The famine was in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread, Genesis 41.54. And it came to pass when he was close to entering Egypt, Genesis 12.11, So they took their livestock and their goods, which they had acquired in the land of Canaan, and went to Egypt, Jacob, and all his descendants with him, Genesis 46.6. And he said to Sarai, his wife, Genesis 12.11. Then Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, Genesis 46.31. Therefore it will happen when the Egyptians see you that they will say, Genesis 12.12. So it will be when Pharaoh calls you and says, Genesis 46.33. Please say that you are my sister that it may be well with me for your sake and that I may live because of you. Genesis 12:13. That you shall say your servant's occupation has been with livestock from our youth even till now both we and our fathers that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. Genesis 46:34. The princes of Pharaoh also saw her and commended her to Pharaoh. Genesis 12:15. Then Joseph went and told Pharaoh Genesis forty seven one, and the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. Genesis twelve fifteen. Then Pharaoh spoke to Joseph, saying, "The land of Egypt is before you. Have your father and brothers dwell in the best of the land." Genesis forty seven six. He treated Abram well for her sake. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female servants, female donkeys, and camels. Genesis twelve sixteen. So Israel dwelled in the land of Egypt the country of Goshen and they had possessions there and grew and multiplied exceedingly Genesis forty seven twenty seven. But the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues, Genesis twelve seventeen. And the Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt, Genesis eleven one Exodus eleven one. And Pharaoh called Abram and said, Genesis twelve eighteen. Then he, that is Pharaoh, called for Moses and Aaron by night and said Exodus 12:31 Now therefore here is your wife take her and go your way Genesis 12:19 Rise go out from among my people both you and the children of Israel Exodus 12:31 and they sent him away Genesis 12:20 and the Egyptians urged the people that they might send them out of the land in haste Exodus 12:33 These parallels actually continue into Genesis 13 uh, with the return from Egypt to Canaan being accompanied by others, taking great possessions with them as they leave Egypt, and then worshiping God immediately upon their departure from Egypt. And again, the point is, even though Abraham's descendants will leave the promised land and end up enslaved in Egypt, they do return to the promised land that God had given them. God's promise is secure. And that's really the point of all these parallels in the history. Here in chapter 12, God made a promise that He was going to bless all the nations of the earth through Abraham's descendant. This is the promise of the gospel, the promise of Christ, the coming Messiah, the anointed one, the promised seed. Can the reader be sure that that promise will be fulfilled? He can. Because the history is repeated in these parallels. You see, that's one way in which God confirms his promises. If we return to the story of Joseph for just a moment, you'll remember that when he was in Egypt, he, he spent some time in prison. And while he's in prison, he interprets some dreams. The prisoners for whom he interprets the dreams are released. One of them is killed. One of them is restored. Two years later, Pharaoh has two dreams on two successive nights. Again, we're beginning to see a pattern. Pharaoh's dreams are of skinny cows eating fat cows and then skinny ears of corn eating fat ears of corn. There are obvious differences, but obvious parallels between these dreams. Joseph is brought out of prison to interpret these dreams, and after he interprets them, he tells Pharaoh this. And the dream was repeated to Pharaoh twice because... The thing is established by God and God will shortly bring it to pass. The history is repeated twice because the promise is established by God and God will bring it to pass. In fact, he is bringing it to pass. We are the evidence of that. Christ was has redeemed us from the curse of the law having become a curse for us that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. The promise of God to bless all the families of the earth through Abraham's seed is confirmed and established and God is keeping that promise even now in the salvation of the Gentiles And God will bring that promise to completion in the fullness of time when he has gathered all his people into one in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen and amen. Let's pray.